0: Hi, Ken. Uh, your last name is Vogel. So, is it pronounced right? So, it is pronounced with a hard G. So, it is Vogel. Mm-hmm. And I know that my grandparents on my, fo- on my father's side emigrated from Germany uh, between the First and Second World Wars. Ah, okay. But what was your first computer? Ah, my first computer. It was something called a DigiComp. Digi- and I actually still own it. It Uh was a plastic computer, uh, 3-bit. It was sold by an old company called Edmund Scientific. And you programmed it by putting uh, small pieces of plastic over pegs. And it was (laughs) spring-loaded. And you could play uh, basic games. You could learn how to do binary math. And that first computer I got when I was probably about 11 years old. And you enjoyed that? I did, but I was frustrated because it was, I guess, akin to the really first generations of computers in the late 40s, early 50s, where, you know, you had to flick a switch, uh, set the ones and zeros manually. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, you know, you could play the game of Nim and a few other things, but I was frustrated. And Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, at that point in time, I thought it was a cute toy, but I didn't really see myself taking that route.
1: Okay. And was it um, somehow connected to a display, to a monitor or a TV set? No, nothing at
0: all. Nothing at all. I I should have brought it in here. I still have it. It's still in the box. Uh, It was a toy. Okay. And then um, we jump ahead. So now we're in, that was probably early 60s. Now we're in the early 70s and I'm in college and I decide to take a course in Fortran. Okay. And these were the days of punch cards. But there was and nothing between. B- between Digicomp
1: no. and okay, interesting. No, no, I I,
0: I became well, I, I was involved in a, a range of, of other things and uh, but whatever. So I take this course in Fortran mm-hmm. and uh, well, my first problem was I never learned to type. Okay. I once took a typing course uh, for the goal of meeting women, but I was so bad on it, bad at it that I. Well, I was bad at meeting women, and I was bad at typing, so I never finished the course. It was a great combination. So here I am, confronted with punch cards, and it just took forever to do anything. Mm -hmm. And there was no user interface. You were basically getting it to add numbers together and other silly things. And I did the course. I passed it and went, nah, this is not for me. Mm -hmm. So we move ahead now to 1980. I've just gotten married. Okay. And we drove a van. So in the 70s and 80s, vanning in North America was a big thing. You'd buy a small commercial van. I, uh, I built a whole interior, a bed that folded out. It had a stove, fridge, the whole thing. And by 1980, it was rusting pretty badly. Uh-huh. So we needed to have the rust removed. And at the same time, I was working at a job where I once calculated that I worked 20 minutes a day. But the nature of the work, I was a service person in a mailroom. They couldn't put me anywhere else just in case somebody came to the mailroom. Okay. So I needed something to do. So there was a, a, a magazine store nearby. And I started buying computer magazines, Creative Computing, okay. Byte Magazine, uh, Micro 6502. And I didn't understand any of it. Actually, I found the ads more instructional than the articles. Uh And in the course of this, I came to the conclusion that I needed this new toy, right? that DigiComp didn't do it for me. Fortran didn't do it for me. But maybe this new generation of personal computer could. Uh My choices were limited. There was the TRS-80. And even back then, we still called it the Trash 80. There was the TI-99 which was an interesting computer because it was the first 16-bit computer from Texas Instrument. Mm -hmm. But it had a keyboard of chiclet keys. It was just a horrible keyboard. Mm -hmm. And then there was the Apple II Plus, the most expensive of the three, but it looked really cool. Question, where where was it in
1: California, your mail room?
0: Oh, no, no, no. It was here in Montreal. It was at a junior college.
1: Oh, okay. I I was working at a
0: college then called Vanier College. Okay. And uh, so that was my mailroom. Okay. So what was the relation between,
1: big, between your van and the mailroom?
0: Yes. that That's where we're coming to. So I've come to the conclusion I want to buy one of these things. Mm-hmm. And it's going to cost me in 1980 um, about $2,000. Mm-hmm. So board. clearly I would just been married. We were going to have to borrow money. So what my wife and I decided to do was we would borrow $5,000 from the bank. Okay. Three thousand to get rid of the rust from the van, and two thousand for this really cool toy. Okay. And and I have to give I cannot say enough about my wife. You know we we've, we've been together for a few years. We just got married, and the fact that she supported this ex- exorbitant expense to buy a computer. So I buy this Apple Two. But uh, first of all, I, I got to get the maximum memory. Wait yes. a second.
1: But uh, your computer was still less expensive than removing
0: rust from, from, from the car. Yes. Yes. It was 2000 and the rest was 3000 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, I, you know. So I, but, I, but, but why was it so expensive to remove the rust? Oh, um, cars at that point in time, the, the metal was not properly treated. Okay. So, the bottom, say, 18 inches, completely around the car. All the side panels had just dissolved. Okay. So it was a big job. So I want to buy an Apple. And the other reason I bought an Apple back then was, as I went to computer stores, there were maybe two or three stores that sold apples. Uh And there were always owners hanging out at the store, even after buying it, just to talk about, oh, what new software, how we did this. People love sharing information. But when I went to a Radio Shack store I wasn't sure if the employees there knew how to turn it on. And as for the the Texas instrument, it was just weird. And again, I never met anybody who owned one. Oh, and then there was the Commodore PET. I learned something important from a Commodore PET. Never use cassette tape for programs. I had my landlord own the Commodore PET, and he would invite me to look at all this amazing software. And he would have to load these cassette tapes four or five times before they loaded up. Yeah. So, I discovered Apple sold floppy disk drives. For only $700, I could get a floppy disk that held 100 k This was like mind-blowing back then. Okay. So, I bought an Apple II. I added... 32k of memory. I had 48k of memory. But there's a
1: missing and piece. Missing piece. Yes. Because if you bought the Apple, you couldn't program, right? Because you just read that's the right. Magazine. So nothing. What, what, why you knew that uh, you need to you know a floppy disk and not cassettes? I mean,
0: oh, it was all about performance. When I would you know watch my landlord work with his Commodore PET, he spent more time loading software than running it. Okay. And so that it became very clear to me that this thing called a floppy disk... Yeah, but I
1: had also also cassettes. And um, my programs load fast because they were small, you know. But loading a game was a different story. It took sometimes 20 20 minutes. But I know a small basic program, it was like, you know, two minutes, I guess. So it was not even or one minute. It was like almost... But, you
0: know, with a floppy disk, even on an Apple II, it was more like 15 seconds. Hmm. It really made a difference. Sure. So... You know, the the 48K Apple, right? I had more memory, the maximum. That was 1300. The drive was 700. Oh, I forgot. There's probably tax in there as well. And I bring this thing home. And quite literally within hours, I become obsessed with it. I've got all these magazines. I'm typing in any program I can find. And back then it was Apple Soft Basic, which was actually written by Microsoft. The first language on an Apple was called Integer Basic, which from its name tells you it had problems with floating point numbers. And then Jobs and Wozniak actually you know, hired Bill Gates and his small company to write a floating point basic for their new machine. And so, I mean, I just went crazy. I, I was working back then as a photography technician, and I would come home and just spend every waking hour, if I wasn't at work, I was teaching myself to program. Why? It just, this was like anything I could imagine, mm-hmm. I could make happen,
2: Yeah.
0: right? I got into the, the graphics aspect. And I also, by the end of about the first year, I realized I had to learn assembly language mm-hmm. because basic was just too slow. Mm-hmm. When I looked at commercial games and I saw how they performed and learned that they were all written in assembly language back then, I had to teach myself that. Was was easy so,
1: for you to teach uh, to teach yourself, you know, programming basic? So was it a?
0: Yes, yes. Okay. I, I can't tell you why I I, I had magazines, books. Uh, I didn't, you know, the the concepts, the flow made sense to me.
2: Okay.
0: And so I, I got more and more into it, and then one day at Dawson, uh, I had now worked. I'm now working at another college. I'm working at Dawson College in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And one day, the college decides, so we're looking at 1982, 83, uh, they're going to go out and buy Apple computers for the college. Mm -hmm. Um, The choice then was Apple or IBM PCs, but IBM PCs were even more expensive than Apple's. So the college decided, we're going to go with Apple's. And then they looked internally to see if there was any employee at the college who had any experience. And that led them to me. And so they invited me to give a presentation on the Apple to the faculty. First time I'd ever stood in front of anybody and made a presentation. And I made this presentation. And I think it went well because two weeks later, they hired me to teach non-credit courses. Okay. Introduction to word processing, how to use an Apple.
1: What does it mean, non-credit courses?
0: So, um... if you're going for a diploma from a college, a university, these are called credit courses. Uh-huh. To graduate, you need so many credits. Oh, okay. You know, an undergraduate degree in Montreal is 90 credits, for instance. Okay. Now, to teach credit courses, you needed qualification. Uh-huh. I didn't have any qualification. So they hired me to teach non-credit. This was actually a, a money-making activity for the college. College was funded by the government, but by offering courses that were not under the government auspices, they weren't controlled by the Ministry of Education, the college could make some cash on the side. Okay. And so they hired me to teach that. And and colleges still do that. As a matter of fact, to this day, I still teach non-credit at a university. Okay, which uh, course? Intruded that. You, you, you so, I, I give this presentation. The next thing you know, I, I'm starting no, no. to teach.
1: Which What, what are you teaching right now? I'm just curious.
0: So, uh, I, I retired a year ago, but in the end, I was responsible for the final year project courses. We would do desktop projects based on JavaFX, and then we would do server-side programming uh, using, uh, well, J2EE then, and JSF. Okay. So... I, I get involved, and then I, I get involved with the local Montreal Apple Corps. I get involved with in one of the first user groups in the city. And then one day, I get a call from an engineering firm in Toronto, Ontario, telling me that um, they're uh, installing a new water filtration system in a plant in Montreal, and they've decided they want to control it with Apple IIs, mm-hmm. and they need somebody to write the graphical user interface. Uh and uh, they were offering kind of more money than I ever imagined I would ever get in one sitting. Uh And so, um, as I've done many times in my career, I said yes to something I had no idea how to do. And uh, within two months, they were running this really cool system. You could see the valves in the, the filtration system. They could pick a valve, open and close it. They wrote the control side. I was only responsible for the user interface. Mm -hmm. And based on that contract, I said, okay, enough working for anyone. I quit my job at Dawson College. And as they say, I put up my shingle. I was already starting to teach three nights a week. And then the work started coming in. Uh, One of my strangest tasks... um, Back in the the late 70s, early 80s, word processing was primarily done on dedicated machines. Mm -hmm. There was the Mycom word processor from uh, Philips. Even Exxon, the oil company, had a word processing division. Mm -hmm. So I worked for a firm where they would deliver the equipment to me. I had specialized hardware to read 8-inch disks, hard sectored, soft sectored. I would have to Analyze each of the disks and discover how the word processors coded things like left justification, right, bold, font changes. And then, in of all languages, PL1, oh, okay. that is the requirement of the client, I had to write translators uh-huh. to and from. So where were we going to? Well, perfect from uh, WordPerfect, WordStar. Uh, Multimate from IBM, and I did that for three years, uh, writing software of this nature. Uh, PL1, uh, a typical compile on an IBM PC with a five megabyte hard disk. So now we're up to 1985. Uh, that would take about twenty minutes, mm-hmm. uh, but it was, you know, I learned a lot about how to structure software, how to organize it. Uh, And then that contract ended and, you know, it was one contract after the other and I was having a great time. I was working at home, right? I I never worked for a company. I was the contractor. And in 1990, I get a call from the computer science credit program at Dawson College. Uh One of their teachers is taking a sudden leave of absence and they need somebody to fill in full time. So I'm sitting there going, well, typically teachers at a college are supposed to have a master's degree. And I never even finished college. So I said, yes. (laughs) And later on, discovered a loophole in the regulations that allowed them to bring me in. But still. So I said, yes. And I became a full-time computer science instructor. Uh, I was teaching what were called complementary courses, you know, intro to programming in C or Pascal, uh, intro to word processing. These were courses that students outside the program in other disciplines would take. So I did my year, I filled in, and then they said, thanks a lot, goodbye. Cool. Left, picked up more contracts. Then a year later, they reached out again and said, "Uh, how'd you like to do this forever? And at this point, the problem with being a contractor was you were never quite sure where your next contract was going to be. Uh-huh. I had a young family, uh, two children. I was looking for some stability. And as I like to refer to the three reasons for becoming a teacher, I don't know if you're familiar with them, June, July, and August, the three months you don't have to work. Uh-huh. So I said, yes, I want to be a full-time instructor. And within two years, I received, and it don't think of it in the university sense, I received tenure, but that was more administrative. There was no research or anything involved. So I've never called myself a professor, but I now had a you know guaranteed position teaching computer science. Mm-hmm. And this was in a department that was COBOL-oriented. Mm-hmm. The program at Dawson College turned out COBOL students. But the faculty knew the world was changing. One question.
1: Did yeah. you actually enjoy PL 1? Because you had experience with uh, BASIC and with ASSEMBLER? And or assembly, and now you learn PL1
0: and COBOL. I, uh, I, I really did like it, and my knowledge of PL1 went a long way to helping me understand and work with C, uh-huh. even though technically C is a smaller language, has a much more compact syntax than PL1 did. It certainly introduced me to the concept of structured programming, uh-huh. right? The, the idea that you write methods, uh, and each method should, as much as possible, just do one thing. And that's what PL1 gave me. I'm at Dawson College now. I'm starting to teach a C programming, then C++. And so how, then, PL1,
1: how PL1 looks like? So it's like a functions, and uh, is this more like C? So, I mean,
0: it's like Java a plus. PL1 pluses. is more like C, but the core library is much larger.
1: Okay.
0: Right, than C. So the, the transition, PL1... It was a strange PL1 to have it run on an IBM PC. It was a mainframe language developed by IBM. Uh-huh. But a company called Digital Research created a compiler for IBM PCs under DOS. Okay. Things evolve by learning other languages. And then one day, nobody in the department wants to be the chair anymore. And I go, oh, this could be something cool. So for 25 years, I was the chairperson of the computer science technology program. Um, I would teach fewer courses, so that's how I could specialize. I did my courses in the third year, the project courses, and the rest of the time, I was in charge of paperwork, Mm -hmm. and I got a chance to to interact with students at new levels. Um, In the college system in Quebec, uh, a chairperson is the, the person between the academic administration, and the faculty. The faculty wants something, they come to me, I go to admin. Admin wants the faculty to do something, they come to me, and I pass it on. And I I have to say, although that kind of arrangement could go badly, uh, my experiences working with college administrators were always good. My experience working with the faculty were always good. Uh And I got to teach what I enjoyed most, which was the project courses. Now, in 2000, so I've already been chair for four years. Uh In 2000, the department decides it's time to say goodbye to COBOL. And we can blame IBM for that. So in 1999, I get in touch with with the IBM rep and I say, we can't afford mainframe time for our students. Our budgets have been cut. If you want us to keep teaching COBOL, Give us a mainframe. We'll find staff to run it, but we can't buy it. Well, they kind of laughed at us and said, "No. no, we only sell these things. So we made the decision to drop the mainframe. What do we replace it with? Well, in 2000, we had two choices. There was .NET, which was just coming out. And then, of course, there was Java. And I had already started teaching Java at Concordia University, the non credit and what I loved about Java in 2000 was I didn't care what computer my students had. Mm-hmm. right? If I were good, When I had to teach C, it was like, okay, we're all using Windows, right? But when you started with Java Visual in, Studio. In, in 2000, 2000 right? when, when you started with Java, 2000 was already late. 2000. Okay. Well, actually, I probably started in 99 and then brought my experience teaching non-credit to the department. And as the discussion went back and forth, I said, we have to go with Java. It's we just, have to remove the hardware from the equation of learning coding. Then it was Java 1.2, right? Yeah, it was 1.2 was the first version I worked They're with. Already sophisticated let me tell in you, Java, right? Yeah. Or- we when 1.4 came out, this was like the most amazing thing. Yeah. Right? 1.4 finally sealed it up nice and clean. So we we discussed and we decided to go with Java. Uh, which involved we, we we actually hired instructors to bring the faculty up to speed, right? You've spent your whole career doing COBOL and suddenly you're told, okay, next week you're doing intro to Java. It was a big transition, but it, it was exciting. And in 2003, IBM calls me up and the conversation is, where do we want the mainframe delivered? Turns out IBM noticed that schools across the world were dropping COBOL from the curriculums. And they suddenly were running out of COBOL programmers. And so I said, thanks, but no thanks. You missed the boat. We're a Java shop now. And it's interesting how, for much of what's happening at IBM, they're a big Java shop now. So... I would
1: tell them back then... Um, just deliver a couple of ThinkPads to my students, right? Because ThinkPads, yeah. the IBM ThinkPads, were great. This was like a dream machine back then. You remember? Mm-hmm. I wanted to have one. So well, like it was like, it, I had one. I think 2003. I got one, but they were that much bad, better than any other laptops. So it was crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, they 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 really did build good hardware. Yeah, uh, their software, <laughs> you know. Let's remember. What was it? The PS2 and that uh, nonsense. But
1: the IBM's Java back then was really quick and fast. And uh, um, I don't know whether you remember the Developer Works uh, from IBM and the Alpha Works website Mm -hmm. and the Jikes compiler, which was crazy fast, was also from IBM. Not always correct, but at least fast. So uh, they, they did an interesting interesting verb back then, I, I also remember. Uh, they, yeah.
0: they definitely did. But, you know, this was also the time when Microsoft decided to make some subtle changes to Java. J plus and plus so there. that cost them a few million dollars. Yeah. And actually, it probably drove the development of .NET because Microsoft recognized the significance of virtual machines yeah. to manage programs. And when uh, back then, Sun wouldn't let them you know, modify Java to meet, you know, Microsoft's needs. They then brought in the developers who built Turbo Pascal for Borland to develop the .NET platform. Yes. Uh-huh. So an interesting time in history. So at that point, I just got involved with, with Java, you know, again, projects, uh, Java Enterprise. Uh, I can remember... Uh, but it, what it was is interesting. the I always had. To, yeah. What is ahead. the
1: story with IBM? So they told you know where to deliver the mainframe. You said okay, thank you. Not and there was any relation with IBM or we just
0: no, no. They never got back to us or anything okay. again. Okay. Uh, I can tell you one more little side note to that. Uh, a couple of years ago, we're meeting with uh, human resources from the Canadian federal government. Mm-hmm. They want to talk to us about hiring our students. Mm-hmm. So great. Now, we're talking about what their skill set are, Java and so on. And the government people say, oh, that's fine, but. Will, would your students be interested if we hired them and sent them to a COBOL training program and then paid them $10,000 more a year for learning COBOL? Would they do it? And we said, well, of course they would. <laughs> it's $10,000 more. So that's how desperate governments were. You know, they still have and there still exists so much COBOL software. When was it? Was it? Uh, this discussion with the federal government would have been in 2016.
1: Okay. So like, it's not that long yeah, ago, it's yeah. right? uh,
0: six years ago. And it's still an issue, right? They will pay bonuses to anybody who works in IT for the federal government to go off and do... Hey, Ken, now,
1: now is your time, right? Now we can, uh, <laughs> become, you can become know the PL1 rock star and COBOL rock star as yeah. well. Just forget about <laughs> Java. know, you have to remember the, the old days.
0: Yeah. So yeah, so no, I I and I, I love Jeff. I love the fact that, you know, I could walk into a classroom carrying a Mac or a PC. But which IDE you
1: used back then? Which was your favorite IDE back then?
0: So the first one we used was something from Oracle called JDeveloper. Yeah,
1: it was J Builder based. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh well there was J Builder, which was a really good one, but you had to pay for it. But we could get uh the the, the Oracle product for free and we could use that. Um, we had looked at another product from Sun that eventually became NetBeans. Java Workshop. was Java Workshop? Sun, Java Workshop, and Sun Something Studio. Something like that. But it was it was very much into this, what I would call the excessive multiple document interface. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you have all these little windows all yeah. over your screen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it just made no sense. Yeah. So we used JDeveloper for a while, and then we moved to Eclipse. Mm-hmm. And Eclipse was an experience. It it did its job, but there was never a class where I would have to tell my students, okay, now build a new project, new workspace. Copy all your code from the old workspace to the new workspace, and then open it and it'll work again. Mm -hmm. Now, those kind of issues are long gone, but it was frustrating. And that frustration led me to NetBeans exactly mm-hmm. because NetBeans it, it wasn't as it didn't seem to have the as many features or whatever but it just worked mm-hmm. right it, exactly you, you weren't you know confronted with strangeness and and it, its integration with Maven was was just stunning back then yeah which version Certainly you better started than with what did. which version Is,
1: which version of NetBeans you started with which was the first I first?
0: probably started with. Uh, I don't know if it's three or four.
1: Okay, I started with five. I, I um, yeah. prior to five, it was for me not usable because they had a strange concept of class path. I remember you had to mount jars, which was strange. And with five, it was really great. And I think with five, they supported Java EE five. And with uh, NetBeans six, there was like complete refactoring, which makes NetBeans faster and prettier and and better. So I really enjoyed NetBeans then.
0: Yeah. It could have been five I started with, you know, that's all yeah. the distant past and that path now, but it just worked. yeah And so I started writing a bit about it, you know, everybody needed a blog, so you know, I bought a domain and put up a blog. And one day I get a uh, a message through LinkedIn from the the manager of the NetBeans uh, project, uh Girchan. Oh, okay. And he says to me, uh, would I like to collaborate with him on a article about Java and NetBeans? So I was flattered and I said, sure. And then I didn't get back to him for like nine months. But by this point, I'd already published a few articles on my blog site about why I love NetBeans and so on. And so I guess it was 2014, uh, four and five, yeah, 2014, he invites me to Java One. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, we're going to have a panel discussion. That'll get your ticket into the conference. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: All you got to do is get funding to get out to San Francisco. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Well, as a teacher, I had access to what's called professional development funding. Mm -hmm. So I got the schools to pay my travel and accommodation. And I went to Java One. And it was just suddenly there were All these people, and I I suspect we probably met the first time at Mm -hmm. that first Java one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what people wanted to talk about it. You know, I don't mean to sound insulting, but this was geek heaven. Yeah. Right? You could just stop anybody in the hall. You'd be on the escalator and suddenly you'd turn around and be discussing, you know, the, you know, the, the significance of this structure in a JSP or, you know, what collection is best. And I'd, I'd never come across that. You know, my department continued to struggle with Java. I was crazy about it. But it's they a little, f-
1: little bit pity because it was 2014. This was already the Oracle's Java one. Yes. So if you would, uh, the original one was even better. So I would say yeah. this, this was uh, a little bit, yeah, it be, yeah. yeah.
0: And then I got invited back. Well, uh, I got invited to another panel discussion the following year. And then for the last three years, so from, what, 16, uh, 17, 18, and 19, I actually submitted sessions. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got in. Though I have to admit, I'm, I'm, I've been told I'm not the only person this has ever happened to, but I think people were being nice to me. I once gave a session that no one attended. <laughs> it was uh, an evening session, 8 p.m. Okay. I used to call these birds of a feather. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about uh, teaching Java. And I remember being in the room, and of course, you're in a room that seats like 250 people, and and nobody came. And after about 15 minutes, I remember the technician at the back of the room comes up to me, and I say, well, I think we're going to close up shop now. And she puts her arm around me, and she says, you know, there's a cannabis store across the street. (laughs) I said, thank you, but no thank you. (laughs) And then I leave, and then I get a phone call from Oracle. Mm -hmm. Going, where are you? You're not in your room. And I said nobody showed up. And they went, "Oh, sorry, bye bye." <laughs> now my other sessions were attended, and and I was happy. But but I just I really loved speaking. I loved the opportunities, you know, to to do that. And then in twenty how oh, my years, twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. it was twenty eighteen. I came back from Java one, and I said, "We need to do something like this in Montreal." Okay. We need a Java conference. So initially, I said, "Ooh, why don't I hold a NetBeans Day? Actually, let's go back. It's 2017. So let's have a NetBeans Day. And I reach out to a a number of people. And this is kind of last minute. You know, I'm I'm in San Francisco late September. And I want to hold this conference in January uh, before classes begin at the college. Uh So there's no students in the building yet. I go to the college administration. And I say, I'm going to need space. I'm going to need this. I'm going to need money. And the college went, this sounds great. Sure. It's all yours. Isn't going to cost you anything. We'll cover all your expenses. So now i got to find people to speak. Well, again, it's late. So we decide, well, we'll have a bunch of people speak online. We had that first year, I guess about 60 people came. Uh The online was an absolute disaster. (laughs) People didn't have fast enough internet. And after that first year, I said, we're never doing this online again. Okay. So then I started reaching out. So our call for proposals was, I said, hey, you want to come to Montreal? (laughs) And people said, yes. Venkat came three years in a row. Uh, Pratik, who was working at IBM. I mean, people wanted to come to Montreal. Josh Long from from VMware in spring. People were coming in from, uh, Hilmer from Columbia, Mm -hmm. were coming to Montreal. And in the, the last year that we ran it, live before the pandemic in 2019, we had over 500 people attend the conference. We had three sessions going on simultaneously. What was the name of the conference? It was called DosCon in the end. DosCon, okay. So it was NetBeans Day for the first two years, and then we changed it to DosCon. And we were looking for other topics. Mm -hmm. So in the last year, we had a a local company that does mobile apps using .NET. So they gave a presentation. Mm -hmm. I was trying to get some Python people then the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So in 2020, I decide, okay, let's do this online. And it actually worked. Mm-hmm. And then one day, I get an email from a company called Geekle. Geekle. Mm-hmm. Geekle. They're running conferences on a range of topics, and they're inviting me to speak at their conference. And I go, oh, that's cool. I'm flattered. Uh Problem is, you have to pay to listen to me speak, but they are offering me nothing more than fame mm-hmm. for speaking. Mm-hmm. There's there's no payment. There's no nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Yet, they're doing this as a commercial version. And I was a little upset, right? You know, I looked at Oracle. Oracle gave me my free ticket, right? Mm-hmm. That was worth, what, back then, $1,500 for the week in San Francisco? Mm-hmm. Cool. That was my payment for contributing to their success but these geekle people were offering me nothing so i said well and i discussed this on the java champions list i said why don't we have our own conference why don't we have a conference of java champions Mm -hmm. speaking on topics it'll be all online we found a good platform for it and yeah the champions were excited we had a call for proposals and so um I think the first one was in, let's see No, we had one this year, twenty so 2022, 2021 was the first year. Okay. Uh, everything is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And right now we're up to over 70,000 views of the sessions from the first two years. Mm-hmm. And that getting involved with running the conference at Dawson got me actually on the radar. The the con led me to being, you know, uh, submitted as a Java champion. Mm-hmm. And I got that. You know, title. And, and it was funny because the year I became a Java champion at Java uh, Code 1, one of my presentations uh, was a kind of a bit of comedy, why there are more Java villains than Java champions. <laughs> and it was an ode to bad code. Okay. And I, I had a lot of fun. I mean, I had people laughing, and I keep thinking I should do that again. There's some really good bad code out there. Yeah. And so, of course, then after doing this, I become a Java champion. So that poses a problem. I can't be a Java villain anymore. <laughs> so I think if you go to javavillain.com, I mm-hmm. still own that domain, you'll find a picture of Snidely Whiplash, who was a villain from cartoons in the 1950s. Okay. He's our uh, symbol, but that's all that's on the page. So I just got involved more with the community. Uh, and then somebody said to me, uh, why don't you get on the JCP executive committee? Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, this sounds interesting. So I ran for election and I won. Wow. And I was filling in for somebody. And then I won a second time. So I'm actually in the third year on the JCP EC. And I bring this up because one of the things I've done on the EC is to reinvigorate the concept of Java in education. Mm-hmm. That is, is what I'm trying to focus on now. How do we encourage schools to use Java? we've seen this movement towards Python oh, nice language. I have nothing bad to say about it, but I don't think good careers are based on Python. Mm-hmm. And I'm more interested in, in my local market here. Mm-hmm. I know that every major enterprise in this city is Java based to a lesser extent. net, mm-hmm. uh, all the banks, all the major engineering firms, everybody's doing Java. Mm-hmm. And that's where the work was. And, it remains that way, but too many people perceive Java as difficult, uh, verbose. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, gee, you know, we all want uh, typeless languages, and you know, I, I remember typeless languages. That was AppleSoft Basic. A yeah. equals four or A equals Bob. The cool story is
1: um, as a Twitter is uh, not always you know easy to. So, with the the algorithmic timeline is the problem in Twitter, and uh, someone and someone wrote um, a post like what's your opinion about typescript or are you using typescript and um, i answered because i thought they're asking me but this was just a random tweet so my uh, my answer was i'm just using you know uh, ecma script which is uh, which is just uh, you know standard and with visual studio code you get almost like uh, typescript behavior and then you know the uh, storm started. How I can say it, you know, JavaScript is not type safe and uh, without types you cannot work and you should use TypeScript to have types and my answer is, what are you talking about? I'm a Java developer. So I'm just using you know JavaScript on a site but 80% of code I'm writing is a Java code but they were absolutely convinced that JavaScript is not usable and you have to use TypeScript in order to have types which is funny because as Java started uh, sorry, JavaScript started the, the, the entire argumentation was we would like to have JavaScript or Ruby, and we don't need types because we can move faster with unit tests and Java is just you know slow because to program it not very effective because you have to care about compilation and types. So um, this was actually funny for me or interesting because this is you no know, the, the whole circle now, now I was on Twitter and I have to justify myself uh, wh- wh- why why I'm not using you no know, types and I use types all the time, but the entire argumentation five years ago is you no, know, skip Java types are stupid. just go to JavaScript you don't need types and, uh, and Python is also interesting. what happens with Python and the typing? I, I expect in a few years someone will invent you know typed Python <laughs> and, and then say, okay you cannot use Python you have to just type Python and, uh, and uh, Java is just too bloated or whatever right so that, that, that's, that, that's this. Uh, what I'm assuming is if something is working in IT, uh, developers become bored and they are searching for new challenges. And this is how new languages or old languages uh, become reinvented again. So, um, for instance, even before the project starts, I get questioned "No, uh, should we use Kotlin? Should we use Scala?" I say, so, "Yeah, but why not Java? I mean, uh, this is really a problem. Java seventeen is great. I, I mean, if we just start using Java, no external dependencies, we can start right away." And I say, "Yeah, but so, like what? But give me just a reason. And actually, there was never a reason. It's more like you know, but you would like to try something else. So, okay." I would say in a commercial project, just use whatever works, Whatever works, right? So just, you know, use the most boring technology you can get and, and, and go ahead. But uh, if you are, you know, your hobby project, it's a completely different story. So I'm really curious how Python, uh, what happens with Python in a few years, maybe the same like JavaScript and TypeScript, right?
0: It's hard to say. It's funny. I, I had to do some research on uh, Visual Studio Code, VS mm-hmm. Code, mm-hmm. and learning how it's created and it's it's actually written in typescript yeah cool. so i oh, typescript i wonder how that how does that relate to javascript and to my absolute surprise i discovered that typescript is first compiled into javascript yeah and then run so there really isn't you know a true typescript language no, it's transpiled uh, yeah th- yeah exactly that that surprised me but it's also in you know, in this particular area the idea that there are people who are you know java's old Here's where I think the, the six-month cadence, the now every two years for an LTS, that excites me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my little things is I miss the switch case from Visual Basic 6.
1: Okay, what is it? I actually
0: did commercial programming in VB6. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it the other day. And, and so here we're in the mid-80s, and it had a one megabyte runtime, which was considered excessive... <laughs> huge one megabyte right especially if you had a 640k machine and but what it had was the most amazing switch because in a case you could do anything you could do comparisons ifs i loved it mm-hmm. right i i almost never had to use if and the recent pattern matching i've been playing with uh, the pre-release of java 19 and you know there's my switch again You know, cases can now be complex decision-making statements rather than just equals, and that excites me. That capability isn't common in other languages, and we're seeing more exciting things. Well, there's, you know, obviously threads everybody's excited about, new access to native memory. Uh, Java is evolving. It is becoming friendlier. But where the problem is is that many programmers who learnt Java five years ago, 10 years ago. Heck, I learned it 40 years ago. uh, They're still programming the same way. Right? So when they see these new features and they go, well, wait a minute, the old way worked, but you're missing the point here. These are better ways of doing, yes, the same thing. And you have to evolve with the language. And if you don't, you're right. People start looking at Python or Kotlin or Scala or any of the other languages to get that, oh, I need something new Fix What they're really saying is, you know, I enjoyed writing bad code for so many years before I figured it out. I want to do that again with a different language.
1: What are you doing exactly as an EC, um, executive uh, um, JCP member? So um, you are, what are the tasks exactly? So, you are in, so uh, yeah.
0: basically every JSR or JEP mm-hmm. is approved of by the committee. Okay. So we review the documents, and if we have any comments, I remember there was one that came up, and I was puzzled why it had not been completed yet, but it was more than 10 years old. It had to do with real time. Mm -hmm. And I remember questioning. I said, really, 10 years? Maybe we should just retire it? Mm -hmm. Wow. The people involved wrote a long (laughs) justification for why they, you know, sorry it took us this long, but we had to get it right. But we got a good explanation. So that's a big part of what the the JCP does. Okay. My general feeling is if it gets to the JCP, people far smarter than me have reviewed it and, you know, recognize that this is significant and this will work. Mm -hmm. So we're like I guess the final proofreaders. Okay. (laughs) Just to make sure it's gonna make sense.
1: But interesting task. I mean you learn a lot and you see you know what's 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 coming, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. And then my my latest activities, as we move on, um, I just finished uh, uh, my first, what I hope will be a long series of videos for A-Press and Springer, uh, learning uh, to program in Java. Mm -hmm. And so the first video is now up on their system. Uh, I've also just begun writing a book for PACT. I'm in the middle of Chapter 3 now, called Transitioning to Java. Okay. So I started off wanting to write a how to program Java for absolute beginners. Mm -hmm. And what um, O'Reilly told me, A-Press told me, and even PAC told me was we have enough of those. Mm -hmm. So in my discussion with PAC, I said, well, let's take a different approach. Let's not write a book for somebody who's never programmed before. Let's write a book for someone who's already coding in a language other than Java. So, I don't have to spend two chapters explaining what a variable is. What I can do is talk about how Java deals with variables, mm-hmm. what the Java syntax is, what are the patterns involved. And PACT went, Yeah, that sounds good. And I remember they said to me, uh, Okay, uh, what do you figure? About 800 pages? <laughs> and I went, No, I was going for 200 pages. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of books, these these huge books. I'd rather have five smaller books than one big book. And uh, I I have to credit Pact. You know, when I I made this presentation and I knew what they really wanted and that wasn't what I was going to do for them, they went, okay, yes, let's do that. And so, you know, first two chapters have gone through editorial and they're happy. Actually, chapter three is Maven. Okay. Right? And – you know, I, I believe that if you're coming to Java, you know, there's the basics, right? The, you know, the JDK and that. But you're building software. This idea of you're compiling, linking. No, 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 no. That's all. That's you're building software. You need to deal with build tools.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You've got Maven, you've got Gradle, and, and some others out there, the old Ant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the the type of, of book that I'm writing for them, and I'm hoping it'll be out uh, in January.
1: Great idea. So you spent the entire summer, you know, writing
0: a book. Well, that's it. And uh, I retired in June, 2021. Um, How are you retired?
1: You you are the ECGCP, you are writing a book, you are recording a series of of, of videos, exactly what I'm doing, actually, and and I'm not retired, right?
0: So in in some respects, I'm back to what I was doing in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. I'm a freelance contractor. Back to the future. Yeah, exactly. And um, I'm for sale. Make me an offer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly.
1: So, if people can um, would like to hire you for teaching or courses or or just contract work, they can just do it, right?
0: That's it. Exactly. Right. Even uh, for COBOL, you know, like, I, if you if you pay you twenty thousand more, you will do COBOL work, right? Well, if uh, you see, I was the one member of the department back in the eighties, okay. actually in the nineties when I started, who didn't know COBOL. Oh, then be one. And I remember, yeah, one day when they give you what courses you're teaching. They gave me intro to COBOL, mm-hmm. and I actually was excited because, hey, you know, it's about as much as I could learn quickly, and I was curious. You know, I, I thought this would be great, and at the last minute, they gave it to somebody else and gave me a C course instead Okay, <laughs> because they knew that was my strength. So, no, I'm not going to be teaching COBOL, but, you know, like many old-timers, you know, there was BASIC, there was assembly language, PL1, uh, there was visual BASIC. Pascal, did a lot of work for Pascal. So, well, people can uh,
1: hire you to transition from something to Java, right?
0: That's it. And that's where this book that I'm exactly. working on is about, you know. Uh, so, I, I'm having fun. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in, in an office come studio uh, I, I'm terribly vain, so I have to make sure I look good. Yeah, you, you oh, look, look pretty, here. so But uh, <laughs> But, you know, to me, life is about having a good time. Exactly. And uh, software has has been the challenge that I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and teaching people to program. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I recognize that I'm not the brilliant programmer. I'm not going to write the next uh, framework for, you know, server side. But this
1: is actually not necessary. I, I would say what's really required is just to write simple code. Mm-hmm. This is the requirement. Not necessary to be a brilliant programmer. I, I mean, you know.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in in terms of my teaching, one of the things that has been very important to me is is how my students organize their code. Uh Um, I I give my students, so I I meet them for the very first time in the third year of this three year program. It's their desktop project. And I give them a program I need them to write for. me. Uh Right. I give them a mathematical formula and I say, write me an interactive program that will ask the user for four inputs, do the calculation, and present the answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Show me what you can do. And it was sad. The number of students who uh, used what I refer to as the stream of consciousness pattern. That means you write all the code in Mm main, as you think of it. Mm -hmm. Um, The lack of, of structure. You know, at most I expected one class and a decently structured program. Here's some input, here's some process. Here's some output. Mm-hmm. So I got students who handed me in programs that gave the correct answer, and I failed them. Mm-hmm. There were no comments. There was no structure to it. And that's what I have focused on in the classroom, mm-hmm. right? My students are pretty smart, right? But the idea that you, you have to organize your software, it has to be, you know, set in a different way. How do you, you know, what becomes a class? Uh, unit testing mm-hmm. you know i tell my students your program doesn't work until it passes the unit test and if you don't have unit tests then we can declare your program never works an offer what we should do
1: i will invite you again and just to talk about teaching how to sure. teach java so this is
0: what you should uh, do. i would love to do that i have some opinions that are a little off a little strange i also have
1: some opinions and this would be interested interesting heated discussion i would say
0: I would look forward to it.
1: Perfect. So, where people can find you on the internet, how the people can hire you, and what is the exact name of the book if they would like to pre-order it?
0: Okay. So, um, you can find me. uh, I use the the handle on Twitter at Omniprof. O-M-N-I-P-R-O-F. You can email me, Omniprof, at Gmail. Mm -hmm. Uh, My blog site, which is getting a little stale, is Omnijava. Mm-hmm. And uh, the company that I had when I freelanced was called Omnibus Systems. That's why I put Omni in front of everything. Okay. Uh, I just saw OmniFish. Some people from uh, another developer have decided to support Glassfish better. Mm-hmm. So I saw Omni again. So I said, hey, if you need another Omni, I'm available. Um, so they can reach me there. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. Just type in my name. You'll find me. Uh, I just love to talk. Um I'm trying to find conferences that will uh, pay me to visit them. Okay. I've made some submissions. I don't have the funding from the college anymore or anywhere. But if somebody thinks I have something worth listening to, I'm willing to travel now. And yeah, I, I just teaching people the program and seeing the result, you know, taking students who don't know, you know, they put everything in main, or every method does six or seven things. And we finished with a, an e-commerce project at the end. And in that e-commerce project, uh, they're writing 100, 150 classes, mm-hmm. right? Every public method unit tested, mm-hmm. right? My focus at Dawson has always been about preparing them for the workforce. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a professional developer? And I, I'd love to talk more about it with you someday. Exactly.
1: This will be the title of our next episode, What does it mean to be a professional developer?
2: Yeah.
0: Perfect. And what does it mean to to teach programming? You know, I actually went back to university in the 90s. And uh, it was a less than pleasant experience when I discovered that the professors at that point in time had little interest in how you Mm coded, just that you coded and got the right answer. Mm -hmm. Okay. And one of the things I did at Dawson was to make sure that wasn't how we taught programming. Perfect. So thank you.
1: And see you next time. My pleasure.
0: Absolutely.